Take your Bibles and open them up with me to Revelation chapter 15. If you need a Bible or you have already picked one up from either side of the room, uh, you can turn to page 1098. I want to encourage you, if, if uh, you don't have a Bible of your own, to just keep that, take that home with you and, uh, and use it at home. Read it with others and bring it back here and read it with us. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time today, we're, we're going to be looking at chapters 15 and 16 of the book of Revelation. We're continuing this series that we've been in for uh, a number of weeks now. So far in the, in the book, we've looked at the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments, and then we just spent the last few weeks uh, slowing down a little bit in, in, in this interlude, if you will, where the vision's focused on the great cosmic war that's been raging behind the scenes of all that's happening on the earth, especially during the time between Christ's resurrection and his return. That was chapters 12 through 14. This morning we're going to look at chapters 15 and 16, and we'll be looking at the seven bowl judgments, okay? So maybe this is your first Sunday here, and you're thinking, oh, well, all right. Uh, we're just, we're jumping in, like, full deep end right here, right? I'm coming in in the middle of the most confusing book of the Bible, uh, um, I'm out. I'm checking out. I'm not going to understand anything today. Or maybe you've been with us throughout the whole series and you're trying to keep track of everything, right? And you're like, I, listen, you're, we're in the same boat because I don't know what's going on. This book deals heavily in symbolism because it's an apocalyptic book. And apocalyptic literature deals heavily in symbolism. It can be tough, listen, to keep every detail of this straight. But I don't think we're meant to. I think we're meant to see how those details fit together and see this bigger picture. But this morning, we're going to see that this symbolism in these two chapters is actually patterned off of something very real that probably a lot of us are already at least a little bit familiar with, the Exodus story. And Moses and Pharaoh and the plagues in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. It's found in Exodus chapters 1 through 15. I'd encourage you to go read that this week. Spend some time in that. Read Exodus 1 through 15 and then reread Revelation 14 and 15 and see how they like tie together like your shoelaces. If you're not familiar with that true story, I just want to give you a quick short version of it. It's that the Israelites were oppressed and persecuted as slaves of Egypt, and God heard their cries for help, and they responded by sending Moses as a deliverer to bring God's judgment on Egypt and then free God's people. God's judgment began, or, uh, on, on Egypt began with a series of plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but Pharaoh, if you know the story, remained hard-hearted, and he refused to let God's people go, and so God brought a final judgment on Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. He parted the sea in two, led his people through on dry ground safely to the other side. And then when Pharaoh's army tried to pursue, they were in the middle of the sea on that dry ground. And what happened? God brought the waters of judgment back over them and they all drowned. Every last one of them. Now our passage in Revelation 15 and 16 is gonna, it's gonna test our hearts this morning and expose how we respond when God brings the full force of his wrath down on his enemies. Maybe you, th you think, wow, all of them drowned, and God did that. And you have to wrestle with that this morning. We're going to wrestle with that together in 
Revelation 14 and 15, because this is God's word, and I want you to hear from him and not me, I want to pray specifically and ask him for help. Lord, you are good, and you do what is good. We pray, teach us your statutes. You're righteous, Lord, and your judgments are just. The decrees you issue are righteous and altogether trustworthy. The entirety of your word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endures forever. May your statutes be the theme of our song during our earthly lives and the joy of our hearts this morning as they point us yet again to Christ Jesus, your son, our shield, our defender, our hope, our salvation, and our life. And we ask these things in his glorious name. Amen. Well, today marks the beginning of the Advent season, which celebrates the arrival of the Messiah that God's people had been waiting for. We sang, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Advent is this, this season that celebrates the coming of Emmanuel, right? Uh, Advent means arrival. And this season ends on Christmas Day because that commemorates the arrival of the Messiah in the birth of Jesus Christ. And to be honest, I'm not sure that I can think of a better book of the Bible that I, that I would rather be in during the Advent season than the book of Revelation. I'm, I'm pretty stoked, actually, that we get to go through Advent in this book. Why? Because this book helps us fix our eyes on the Advent that we are longing for, the Advent that we are waiting for. You see, we're not waiting in anticipation for the Messiah to be born. We're waiting in anticipation for the Messiah to return. And we need to know how we ought to live in the time between the first advent and the second advent of Jesus. And that is the main focus of the book of Revelation. But at first glance, today's passage doesn't exactly seem to bring tidings of comfort and joy, if you will. Right? In fact, may, it may actually cause you to sort of wriggle and squirm in your seat a little bit. And if that's your reaction, it might be revealing something about your perception and your expectations of God. When the Israelites uh, waited for the first advent of the promised Messiah, they expected him to come as a conquering king and rescue them by the use of force from the oppression of Rome, a national enemy. But what they got instead was a suffering servant who came to die for his enemies and conquer them with his sacrificial love. You see, the irony is that because these Israelites, many of them had the wrong perception and expectations of God, some of those Jews were the very ones that were waiting for the Messiah. They were the very ones that killed him. Some people think that God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament, but that's not true. He's a God of wrath and love in both Testaments. He's the same God. He doesn't change. He, listen, he always is all that he is. He always is all that he is. So if we don't like the idea of God's wrath because Jesus came as a savior, this passage this morning, who speaks of this savior who came, this passage is gonna challenge us to change our perception and expectations, and it's gonna show us how to respond rightly to the reality that God saves some of his, of his enemies and he judges the rest of them. 
In order for us to understand how to respond rightly to this reality of God's wrath, we first need to ask a few important questions and then let the, the, the text itself answer them for us. It's only when we're honest about these answers to these questions that we'll be able to grasp the main point of what all of this is trying to tell us. So here's the questions, okay? We're going to go through these together. The first one, is God hot-headed? Is God hot-headed? Second question, are people really that bad? And third question, is this world paradise? Is God hot-headed? Are people really that bad? And is this world paradise? Let's tackle the first question together. Is God hot-headed? Now, my boys love to watch uh, a YouTube channel called Dude Perfect, and maybe you're familiar with that. They do a lot of trick shots, but they also do something called uh, stereotypes videos where they caricature uh, all of these different types of people in a given situation. So, example, uh, they have a Christmas stereotypes video that includes the person who gets up way too early, right? The, the person who's like super careful at unwrapping the gifts because they want to save the wrapping paper. And, and then also like the person who's way over the top with the Christmas lights. Stereotypes, right? But there's one person that shows up in every one of their stereotypes videos, no matter what the occasion is. Who is it, guys? The rage monster. The rage monster. This is the person who gets upset about uh, something petty and then flies off the handle for no good reason and destroys everything in its path, in his path. It's hilarious in the videos. It's not hilarious in real life, right? I wonder if this is how we're tempted to think about God when we consider his wrath in Scripture. Is God hot-headed? We need to see this. This is definitely not how John thinks about God as he sees yet another vision of God's wrath here. We're going to start in chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. Seven angels with seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed John is not giving us a chronological timeline of events here. He's giving us the order of the visions that he saw. That's important for us to understand. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, these are all referring to the same time frame in history between Christ's first advent and second advent, his resurrection and his return, which means that they're all speaking about the same thing. We've talked about this before. God's lowercase judgments, uh, lowercase j judgments on the earth during, that t- during this time that lead to his final uppercase j judgment of all the earth. That's what these seals and trumpets and bowls are all talking about and showing. These aren't different spots in the overall timeline. They're different camera angles of the whole thing. And they show the same judgments in increasing severity. If you remember, the seven seals showed God's wrath, but in a limited way, right? A quarter of the earth was affected by, the, by his wrath in that vision. And then we got to the seven trumpets, and, and, it, and it ramped that up a little bit, but it was still limited. It was a third of the earth that got affected by his, ju- by his wrath, his judgments. But then these seven bowls are the seven last plagues in the sense that with this vision, God's wrath will be completely revealed in all encompassing and a final way. We get to see the whole thing here in its full intensity. 
And notice what John says about this vision of God's wrath in verse 1. That it's great. And it inspires awe. He's not getting ready to tell us about a rage monster. He's getting ready to tell us about a righteous judge. We have to know this. We have to see this. So let's keep going. We're actually going to skip verses 2 through 4 for now and come back to them at the end. So jump down with me to verse 5, chapter 15. After this, I looked, and the heavenly temple, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, dressed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes, sashes wrapped around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Then the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Throughout the Bible, the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temper, uh, temple are always associated with God's holiness and his presence here in an unholy earth. Same is true uh, here of, of the heavenly temple, only there's no unholiness up there. Heavenly temple reveals a holy God. The seven angels are dressed in pure, bright linen. These plagues are not, uh, they're not, they're not uh, defiled by these plagues. They have golden sashes around their chest. They're acting, they're in priestly garments. They're acting as priestly agents of God's righteous judgment. In the Old Testament, bulls were used in conjunction with priestly service in the tabernacle and the temple. That's why this vision contains bulls and not seals and not trumpets. Each of those had their own meaning to reveal something to the aspect of God's judgment. Back in John's vision in chapter five, we saw how the, 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 the lamb took the scroll and pre prepared to open its seals, which represented God's judgment. And John also saw the four living creatures and the 24 elders holding what? Do you remember? Golden bowls. Golden bowls filled with incense. And then he said that that incense represented the prayers of the saints. When the fifth seal was open. We heard the prayers of the saints under the altar of the heavenly temple, Revelation 6.10. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, listen, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Did they see God as a rage monster? No. They knew that he's the righteous judge and they were crying out for vindication and justice in chapter 8, when the seventh seal was opened, the seven angels with the seven trumpets were standing there in the presence of God, while another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar and filled that incense burner with a large amount of incense along with the prayers of the saints. And then he filled it with fire from the altar and he hurled it to the earth. Fire in Revelation is always associated with God's wrath and judgment. Immediately following that, we get the seven trumpet judgments, which reveal this wrath in a, in a bigger way, and yet not the full way, in chapters 8 and 9. And those trumpet judgments also echo the plagues that God carried out in Egypt. And they parallel these seven bowl judgments. Why? Because these bowl judgments are showing us the fullness. What does all this mean for us then? It means that these seven bowls filled with wrath of God who lives forever and ever, as John called him here, these are revealing God's full 
and final answer to the prayers of the saints for vindication and justice. This is how God is going to answer their prayers. These plague-filled bowls are not the crazed fury of a rage monster. They're the calculated fury of a righteous judge. God is not hot-headed. God is holy. 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 And that means that his wrath is holy too. And where is his wrath, this holy wrath directed? You got to go to chapter 16 for that. Look at verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and, severe, and severely painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped its image. The second poured out his bowl into the sea. It turned to blood like that of a dead person, and all of life in the sea died. The third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. I heard an angel of the waters say, or the angel of the waters say, you are just the Holy One who is and who was because you have passed judgment on these things. Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you have given them blood to drink, and they deserve it. I heard the altar say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Even though these bold judgments echo the plagues in Egypt, they're not literal plagues like the ones in Egypt were. John calls these bold judgments at the very first verse of chapter 15 a great and awe-inspiring, what? Sign, which means they're symbolic. They're not literal, they're symbolic, and they symbolize the reality uh, that the Exodus plagues literally pointed to. God's righteous judgment carried out to completion against idolatrous and hard-hearted people. Every one of the plagues in Egypt was God's way of exposing their false gods and making his glory known as the one true God. To use the language of Psalm 98 that we read, uh, this, or uh, uh, of Jeremiah that I read during the prayer time, God's exposing their stupidity and their foolishness because they are trusting in themselves and other false gods and not him. He's doing the same thing on a global scale here as the bowls are being poured out on people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image, which is another way of describing idolatrous unbelievers in the book of Revelation. The painful sores from the first bowl echo the sixth plague in Egypt to point to the misery and suffering that unbelievers experience in this world because of their idolatry. Psalm 16 verse 4 says, the sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. That's what's happening here. Second and the third bowls echo the first plague in Egypt when God turned the Nile River into blood. The Nile was a lifeline of Egypt, especially for their economy. In John's day, sea and, seas and rivers were a major economic lifeline as well, and it's really no different in our day. Remember that back in March of 2021 when that massive cargo ship, the Evergreen, or the, uh, excuse me, the Evergiven, got stuck in the Suez Canal, which is maybe not so ironically in Egypt. We don't want to read too far into that. The Ever Given is one of the largest container ships in the world, and when it got stuck for six days, listen, 
it created a colossal traffic jam, some 200 ships behind it that couldn't go either way. And it cost the global trade industry $9 billion a day and created a supply chain shortage that was felt everywhere and we still seem to be feeling. These second and third bowls remind us that when an unbelieving and an idolatrous world places its security in the economy instead of in God, God himself has a way of reminding the people of the world that they cannot serve both money and him. And the angel of the waters in verse 5 reminds us that God is holy and just precisely because he passes judgments on these things. Chapter 6, the saints under the altar cried out for God to avenge their blood. And here in verse 7, where, where do we hear the voices coming from? From the altar. They cry out here in agreement with the angel of the waters. There they're going, Lord, how long until you judge? Here they're going, yes, judge. They agree with the angel that God is true and just because he's avenging their blood. Verse 6 is another picture of God's retributive justice. We talked about this last week. It's where the punishment fits the crime exactly. Or as I recently heard one pastor put it, I love this, it's poetic justice where the offense and the judgment rhyme. The punishment fits the crime. They're, they're, they're the same, right? Think back to the Exodus again for a moment. When Moses was born, do you remember what Pharaoh did to persecute the Israelites? He, he ordered that every son born to the Hebrews be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. And how did God ultimately end up bringing final judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians? By throwing them into the sea and drowning them. By putting to death their firstborn sons during the Passover. The offense and the judgment rhyme. The punishment fits the crime. This is retributive justice. This is how God judges. This is what just and true judgment looks like. It's measured. It's complete. Here in verse 6, the angel says, Because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, you gave them blood to drink. There it is again, right? It's poetic justice. It's retributive justice. Because the ungodly world unjustly passes judgment on God's people, God himself will justly pass judgment on the ungodly world. And the angel and the saints at the altar agree. And this, this part right here might be hard for us to read and swallow. The ungodly world deserves it. Uh, we can't mince those words. I can't change those. It's literally what it says right there. They deserve it. They deserve the judgment that they receive. Now, maybe that's like, maybe now you're writhing. Maybe now you're wriggling, squirming in your seat, going, Ooh, I, what is, I don't know about this. That's why we need to ask the second question. Are people really that bad? Are people really that bad? A common misperception that people have, including some Christians, is that even though that there are some exceptions uh, in the world, but most people in the world are generally good. This perception is reflected in sayings like, he's got a good heart, but he's just made some poor choices. But is that actually true? Was Pharaoh generally good? 
Were the Egyptians generally good, the ones who kept Israel enslaved? Well, maybe they're just some of the exceptions in a world full of good-hearted people. But let's think about this for a second. Did you know, like if you read through Exodus 1 through 15, that the Pharaoh that wanted to drown all of the Israelite sons, the Hebrew sons in the Nile, and the Pharaoh that got drowned in the Red Sea are not the same Pharaoh? Ouch. That hurt. The first Pharaoh died after Moses fled to Midian and before he returned to Egypt to deliver God's people. So why is it retributive justice? Why is it that God can judge the second Pharaoh the way he did if the first Pharaoh is the one that wanted to drown everybody? Because even though they're two different Pharaohs, they have the same hardened heart towards God and his people. And the Pharaohs aren't the exception when it comes to having hardened hearts. Let's jump back in here. Verse 8, chapter 16. The fourth poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and people were scorched by the intense heat, and so they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues because of their pain and blasphemed the, name, uh, uh, the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they did not repent of their works. As the fourth and fifth bowls are poured out, a couple things are abundantly clear here. First, God's judgments bring agony and misery on the recipients of them. These aren't fun judgments. Second, the recipients of God's judgment hate God. They hate him, and his judgments only magnify that reality. These are not generally good-hearted people who made some poor choices. These are hard-hearted people who are in deliberate rebellion against God. Their blasphemy and lack of repentance weren't the response to God's judgment. Don't mistake that. They're the reason for it. They're the reason for it. Verse 2 told us that these people are idolatrous. Verse 5 told us that these people are persecutors of God's people. Both of those things are evidence of hard-heartedness toward God. They're the same things that the pharaohs were guilty of. And that hard-heartedness is fully exposed here as these people follow in the pharaoh's footsteps by cursing God, blaspheming, and refusing to repent from their sin or give him glory. They pledge their allegiance to the kingdom of darkness and their hearts are darkened toward God. And so what does God do? He plunges them further into darkness plunges them further into darkness. The judgment rhymes with the offense. Poetic justice, retributive justice, the punishment fits the crime. And here's the reality that we need to understand. These ungodly people that we just read about, they aren't the exception in a world full of generally good people. They're the norm in a world full of people whose hearts are hardened by sin. Jesus himself puts it this way in John's gospel. John 3, 19. This is the judgment. This is the truth, in other words. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They're hard-hearted. The apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 3, in case you don't want to take Jesus' words for it. 
what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good. Not even one. Not even one. And he keeps going, just in case we're still not convinced. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Listen, viper's venom is under their lips. What does that sound like? The serpent, the seed of the serpent from Genesis 3.15, right? Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. They blasphemed God, and they did not repent of their works or give him glory. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. That's not just talking about the pharaohs in Egypt. That's not just talking about the ungodly people in John's vision. That's talking about you and me. Do you know that? That's who we are. That's who we were. If you're in Christ, that's not who you are anymore. We'll get to that in a minute. God's word reveals that every human being is a sinner who is subject to God's judgment. Nobody is exempt from that. That means that people really are that bad. They really are. We really are. In our earthly justice system, we've seen these on the crime shows. People get convicted of crimes they didn't commit. We need to know this. In the court of heaven, no one will be wrongly convicted. And no one will be wrongly sentenced. Because the true and just judge is the one who delivers it. All who receive God's judgment truly deserve it. But listen, this is why the news of the gospel is so good. This is why the gospel is such good news because it tells us about how the righteous judge himself made a way for us not to get what we deserve. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and be judged in our place and Jesus willingly came and received that judgment that he did not deserve so that all who trust in him become exempt from the, from the judgment that we do deserve. We deserve it. He didn't. And he traded places with us. As those who trust in Christ, we are the exception in a world full of hard-hearted people, not because we don't deserve God's wrath, because we do, right? Not because we figured out how to be good, because we can't. Because in his incredible an abundant grace, God himself rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He didn't drive us further into it. 
He brought us to the light and made us aware of our wickedness. He transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. He gave us new hearts, took our hardened hearts away, gave us new hearts that are softened to Jesus, our redeemer, so that we repent of our works and trust in his work. We need to understand this. This is so important. Our sin was not put on the cross. Our sin was put on Christ, and Christ went to the cross. Church, that is a distinction we have to know. A person, God himself in the flesh, died for what we deserve. Gave his life for us. Our sin was put on Christ, and he was put on the cross. God doesn't just arbitrarily judge sin. He judges sinners. But this is grace. This is grace. He judged his sinless son in the place of sinners, and his sinless son willingly received that judgment on behalf of sinners. This is good news. This is good news. This is gospel news. Listen, if we shy away from the reality that sinners deserve God's judgment without exception, hear me, then we are in danger of cheapening the grace of God and the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. God himself has said that all people are sinners and all sinners deserve his wrath. If we disregard that, if we say anything different, then we are in danger of calling God a liar and accusing him of injustice. And do you know what that is? That's blasphemy. The very thing that we just read about that these people are guilty of and being judged for. The news of the gospel is far too good for us to cheapen it by downplaying the wickedness of people and the righteousness of God. Jesus himself is far too glorious for us to be embarrassed about telling people the whole reason why they need him and his sacrifice. Listen, why we need him and his sacrifice. Jesus didn't just pay for sin. He died to purchase sinners. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, purchased with his blood to redeem us. And here is the important, not the important, but we can't get around this, to reconcile us to the righteous judge by removing God's wrath against us because he took it upon himself. He redirected it to himself. That's what that word propitiation means. Stepped in our, in our way and absorbed the wrath that we deserve. But you need to know this too. That's only true for those who recognize their own guilt, who see their need for forgiveness and who put their trust in Christ. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking you know better than God, you can't, you can't get around this truth. You, you can't say that God did not say this. But you can rebel against it. because Jesus has rescued me from this wrath and because I love you, I want you to hear this truth. I want you to know this truth. If you're not a follower of Christ, scripture makes it very clear that God's wrath remains on you, not on his son, on you. And it's what you deserve. 
Listen, it's what I deserve. I'm not better than you. I need grace as much as you do. Nobody needs it more than I do. Why is it that God's wrath remains on you? Why is it what you deserve? Because you've rejected the only one that can remove that wrath from you. That's why. You've denied the offer of grace that God freely gives. But listen to me. That would be a, that, listen, if you just walked out with that, that's a bad day. But you don't have to walk out in rebellion. You don't have to keep rejecting the truth. You don't have to keep rejecting the Savior, the one who is grace himself. You can actually turn right now, even before I finish this sermon, and repent. You don't have to stay hard-hearted. The Lord himself wants to show you his mercy. So I beg you to run, not out these doors, but run to Jesus Christ. Confess your sin and your guilt to him. Ask him for the forgiveness that he, listen, stands ready to give. He promises that in John's gospel. Anyone who comes to me, I will not turn away. I will not cast out. And trust yourself to him and then he will set you free from judgment and give you eternal life with him in paradise. And that brings us to the final question we need to ask. Is this world paradise? Now, I don't think that we need to look in the text here to get the answer, but we're going to. I think everybody already knows that this, is, uh, this world is not paradise. So let me rephrase it for us, okay, if I can. Let me ask it this way. Do you want to live forever in a world corrupted by sin, evil, pain, suffering, idolatry, immorality, rebellion, and death? Anybody? If you're like me, your answer is no. And if your answer is no, then we need God to bring his final judgment on this world so that we can live forever in true paradise with him. The last verse in chapter 15 says that no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. When we get a view of paradise to come in chapters 21 and 22, we're going to see that there is no temple because the, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb in themselves are the temple. So what does it mean to enter the temple then? To enter the temple is to enter God's presence in paradise forever, and that will not happen until, uh, for all of God's people until all of God's enemies enter the heavenly courtroom for final judgment. Until God's wrath is complete. Let's finish this out. Verse 12 through 21. The sixth poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And then I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet, which is the other beast. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who traveled to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Look, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. So they, may, uh, so they assembled the kings in the, at the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. 
Then the seventh angel, or the seventh poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came from out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since people have been on the earth. So great was the quake. The, the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence, and he gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled, and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell from the sky on people, and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail, because that plague was extremely severe. The sixth and seventh bowls show us that the world is not the paradise that we long for. It's been overrun by Satan and his demonic forces. It's been corrupted by sinful humanity. And together they want nothing more than to dethrone and destroy God and God's people. But the sixth and seventh bowls also show us that God will bring all of his enemies and all of evil to a clear and decisive end. When the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, you see what it said? The water dried up. What does that sound like to you? The parting of the Red Sea, right? It sounds like, like, like what happened for the Israelites and the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Pharaoh remained hard-hearted toward God even after God sent all ten plagues. And when Pharaoh brought his army out against God's people, God brought Pharaoh and his army to a decisive end by bringing the waters of judgment back over them and drowning them in the sea. Here the Euphrates River is mentioned because after Babylon took the Israelites into captivity in the Old Testament, God brought judgment on Babylon through Cyrus, the king of Persia. Cyrus diverted the waters of the Euphrates River and crossed over through shallow water to conquer Babylon and release the Israelites from exile. The judgment on Egypt, the judgment on historical Babylon serve as precursors to the judgment that God is going to bring upon symbolic Babylon, which is called Babylon the Great here. In the end, it won't just be one nation that's judged. It will be the kings of the whole world. Every hard-hearted person and every idolatrous and beastly nation that has set themselves up in opposition to God will come to a clear and decisive end. Babylon the Great will drink the cup filled with the wine of God's anger, and she will deserve every last drop. In the same way that the Euphrates River here points symbolically to God's decisive end-time judgment on the whole world, Armageddon also symbolically points to the final battle between good and evil. In Hebrew, Armageddon means Mount of Megiddo. Megiddo was a place of many key battles in Israel's history, and the prophet Zechariah spoke of it in conjunction with the coming day an advent when God would make Jerusalem a cup that causes staggering for the peoples who surround the city. In Zechariah 12, the Lord said, on that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That picture is symbolically portrayed here in verse 19 as Babylon the Great is remembered in the presence of God and is given the cup of wrath, the wine of his anger to drink. Like we've already seen several times in Revelation, the final judgment is described here again with imagery of lightning and thunder and earthquakes and hail. But there's one, but here the description is more severe than it's ever been in Revelation. Why? Because it's the full picture. No holds barred here. 
And notice in verse 21 that the hard-hearted, idolatrous people are blaspheming God all the way to the end. Listen, nobody survives a 100-pound hail. That's not a literal thing. That's symbolic there to show that the judgment is complete. They're not blaspheming God after the hail. They're blaspheming God during it. In that final judgment, that's what comes out of their mouths. But you know what? There's no mention of people refusing to repent. Why? Because the end has come. And the time to repent has run out. With the seventh, or when the seventh bowl was poured out, a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. Whose voice is that? Who sits on the throne in Revelation? God, right? And what did he say? It is done. Now those words ought to sound familiar because we just went through the Gospel of John, right? John recorded them in his gospel too. They were the last words our Lord shouted on the cross before he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The kingdom of God was inaugurated when Jesus said, it is finished, when he shouted those words from the cross and his kingdom will be completed when God shouts, it is done from the throne. Why? Because every sin will be accounted for. Everyone God will have no more wrath to pour out. Why? Because he will have poured it out either on his son in the place of every sinner who repented and believed in him or he will have poured it out on every sinner who remained hard-hearted and unrepentant toward him. That's it. In verse 15, Jesus interrupted John's vision and said, look, I'm coming like a thief. In other words, his return is gonna be sudden and unexpected. And this, this is the second advent that we're waiting for as a church, as his church. And he said, blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and people see his shame. This is a gracious invitation and warning to those in the church who may look like a Christian on the outside but are really still hard-hearted and unrepentant on the inside. If that's you this morning, this, this, listen, listen up. This is an invitation and a warning The only way to be ready for Jesus' return is to be clothed in his righteousness. Please don't play Christian dress up. Put your trust in Jesus now and you will never be put to shame. That is the promise. That is the promise. And when Jesus does return, those of us who have been clothed in his righteousness won't be ashamed of his wrath. I'll prove it to you. Let's go back to the verses we skipped over in, verse 15, in chapter 15. Verses 2 through 4. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory over, its, over the beast, its image, and the number of its name were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. These are the saints that we saw standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb in chapter 14. These are the ones who won the victory over the beast, its image, and the number of its name. The ones who didn't compromise with the world and give in to the idolatry, but conquered. That's what that, well, the word there, one victory means. 
They conquered by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. These are all the saints across all of time over all the world that Christ has purchased with his own blood. Do you know what that means? This picture has you in it if you're a follower of Christ. It's a picture of the paradise that's coming. All of God's redeemed have entered into the heavenly temple and are standing in God's presence around his throne. And did you notice what they're standing on? A sea of glass, like dry ground. Like dry ground. Jesus has delivered his church from judgment and from the enemy once and for all, and the enemy has been judged once and for all. And just like Moses and the Israelites sang praise to God by the Red Sea after he delivered them from Pharaoh, the church will sing praise to God by the glassy sea after he delivers us from the evil one. After all the hard-hearted, unrepentant people from all the nations come and receive the fullness of God's wrath, all of the new-hearted, repentant people from all the nations will come and worship the Lord in the fullness of his grace. We will not be embarrassed by God's wrath then, and we should not be embarrassed by God's wrath now. We should not shy away from it. We will worship God because of it then, so we should worship God because of it now. Why? Because the reality of God's wrath magnifies the enormity of God's grace. Who gets to sing about the wrath of God joyfully? Those whose wrath have been removed from them. This is the reality. His, his wrath magnifies the enormity of his grace and reminds us that the Lord God, the Almighty, the King of nations is just and true in all his ways. He alone is holy. He alone is good. And in his goodness, God has made us holy with him through the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of his son. Normally, I gave you the main point at the beginning of the sermon. I think we're ready for it now. God's wrath makes him worthy of our worship because he is holy. The world is wicked and paradise won't come until his wrath is complete. God's wrath makes him worthy of our worship because he is holy. The world is wicked and paradise won't come until his wrath is complete. This, this great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven that John has given in these chapters is meant to drive us to worship our holy God for his great and awe-inspiring works. Did you notice the same phrase there? That certainly includes his work of redemption, but his work of redemption includes his work of judgment because redemption comes through judgment. His righteous acts are being revealed even now. So I'll end with this one final question. Who will not fear and glorify his name? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word that tells us the truth, reminds us of our need, and then shows us how you have met that need so gloriously in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that there is no person that walks out of here this morning that does not stand in awe of your judgments, your wrath, because we are also standing in your mercy. Spirit, 
remove hardened hearts. Replace them with softened hearts. And may we look to Jesus together, the author and the perfecter of our faith. May we long with the saints for God's justice to be done so that we can be in paradise forever with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.